The New Level Cap Podcast is a show about fun, friends, game design, and all things otherwise. Your hosts are Marco DeSantos and Brad Talton of Level 99 Games. I'm Chris Solis, your producer, and without further ado, please enjoy the show. Welcome back to another Level Cap Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Talton, and with me, my co-host, Marco DeSantos, also known as the Mechanic Critic. Oh, wow. You introduced me instead of me introducing me. Welcome, everyone, and I'm happy you're listening in on the show. Today, we have a wonderful docket for you. We're going to be talking about Seventh Cross. Now, you may be wondering, why would I want to hear about that? I've heard about it before. Well, Brad, tell the listeners why they would want to hear about it now. Because it is actually coming soon. No longer with the quotes. It is truly coming soon. We are getting ready to launch this project this winter, and it's going to be pretty huge. I'm super excited for everything that we've got coming for Seventh Cross, and I'm going to tell you all about it in today's in today's podcast. And we're going to be bringing back weekly blogs for Seventh Cross and the landing splash page preview page for Seventh Cross Project. So things are really coming together. We're putting a lot of work into getting this game ready, and I am excited to tell you everything about it. Yeah, and I want to also make it very clear that if you've already listened to a lot of our previous episodes where we talked about Seventh Cross, Seventh Cross has actually evolved uh, since since that time. So it's, it's very like, changed quite a lot yeah. as we've gotten into the narrative side of the project and been writing the stories, creating the characters, and figuring out how the story of the game is going to be told. Things have changed quite drastically. So, uh, All right, so Marco, talk- you've been with me this whole journey. <laughs> we'll see what's changed. We'll see what's... Ch- actually, uh, let's let's... Let's set some expectations, right? The first part of this episode, we'll be giving you a general overview of Seventh Cross, and we're going to be talking about the story and narrative elements of the game. We're going to take a short break afterwards, and then we're going to talk about the combat mechanics and the, uh, you know, the nitty-gritty, fighty-fighty mechanics. Uh, so let's start it off. What is Seventh Cross? I mean, I know that lore-wise, it's about, it's it's a branch of the church that haunts monsters, but let's talk about the game Seventh Cross. Hunters of the Church, I believe, is the name of the game. Yeah, Hunters of the Church is a subtitle. Uh, to contrast with our other Seventh Cross games, we have a couple others in the works that we're planning right now for the future. We also have Seventh Cross Succeed. So in order to avoid any confusion with those, this is Seventh Cross Hunters of the Church. This is the big adventure game that is meant to be the core anchor game of the series. Mm-hmm. Now, this game has two parts. There is a part of the game where you are hunting monsters, you're exploring different locales, collecting clues, interacting with people, building up your hunters, and then there's a part where you are in battle and fighting monsters in a life-or-death situation, so a true combat portion of the game. And these two go back and forth, typical of what you would expect in games like Kingdom Death or Madara or Gloomhaven, so there's a uh, explore phase and a battle phase, back and forth. Yeah, but the game is very different than than these other games, for reasons which I'll explain presently. Right. Uh, so there's there's a term that you've come up uh, <laughs> to describe what Seventh Cross is as a kind of game because it's not necessarily a legacy game, right? I would I would call it a rogue legacy game, except I can't because Rogue Legacy is the name of a game on Steam and quite a good one, which you should play. Yep. Uh, we I think we did it on the previous level cap podcast. Yeah, one of the older ones. We definitely the, talked about the in the, the ancient archives of our episodes. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, in but, the scrolls. But yeah, so 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 it's obviously we're trying to do like a roguelike legacy game, sort of like a legacy like. I'm not sure. I guess I I guess I call it a legacy like because it's not a true legacy board game, right? And for me, uh, I've played quite a few legacy games. 
I do have a problem with them. The main problem with legacy games is getting the same group of people together for 12 or 20 or 30 games. Mm-hmm. You know, like Gloomhaven's campaign is like 45 games long. And it's hard for me to get people, same group of people together three weeks in a row, let alone 40 weeks in a row. So one thing that I wanted to do with Seventh Cross was make it so that flexible groups could play this game and enjoy it. And so the way that this works is there are complete adventures. Let's call, let's call it an adventure. And the adventure is about seven to ten hours long between all the fights and all the exploring you can do. So that takes generally around three to five game sessions, depending on how long you want to play each time you sit down. So give or take exactly around what paths you 10 do. hours? Yeah, about ten hours in total okay. is what you should expect for a full playthrough. And then... Once you complete one of these castles, the game forgets your state. You don't need to keep track of every decision that you made or every person that you met or every person who died. The game will reset, and when you play another scenario, then you start from scratch. And so the players who, you know, if new players want to jump into a game or people need to leave, it's a great time to do it. They can just pop out or pop in, and the game doesn't expect you to have prior knowledge of previous events. You can start in Castle 2 or Castle 3, knowing nothing about the world, nothing about the characters, nothing about the previous events of previous players and previous games, and that'll be fine. You can get the full story. But within each of the stories, so it's kind of like your decisions track within one adventure, but once the adventure ends, it doesn't necessarily track that. And quite heavily. Like, you will see the results of your decisions very quickly in these games, and they're very important decisions. So... Not just, and not just, you know, do I go left or right on the path, or do I fight this person or not fight this person? But when your characters die in combat, that the death is permanent. The character oh, is gone. The Dark Souls and, of combat. Yeah. 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 You. The Dark Souls of combat. And it's not like these are classes where you just roll up another rogue because your rogue died. There are eight named characters in the game. And so when Cyrus dies, Cyrus is dead for the rest of the adventure. He doesn't come back. And that can certainly change things. Because if you, you know, he's a medium, and if you needed him to talk to some spirit for you, then you get to that point in the story, and he's dead, so you can't. Mm -hmm. And it's the same way with all of the associates you meet. These are the non-combat characters who come to your sanctuary and and assist you in various ways. Sometimes you'll find ways to interact with them, or even fight with them, or kick them out. Maybe they betray you. Depending on how you interact with those situations, those characters might stay, they might leave, they might die. They might turn into a boss that you have to kill, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, They might turn into a boss that you have to kill. They might turn into a boss that can run away. And you could choose to let them run away. So there are the way that the combats play out is more than just binary. It's Um, more than just kill the boy and not kill the boy, right? It's interesting. It's very interesting. Um, And and, and there's really a decision. Are we going to run away from this fight? Or are we going to let Zolt die so that we can kill this monster? Are we willing to sacrifice one of our hunters to to make it through? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because we do have eight. We don't need, like, the party size is four. So we do have eight hunters. So there's some decision to make there. Um, But anyway, we we wanted a game where death would be real. And where (laughs) the consequences were were dire. Yeah, you definitely feel it, right? Since literally losing a character is more than just, oh, I guess I can't play the rogue now, right? I think one thing I want to point out here is that this kind of speaks to the legacy element of it. Uh, But what's the roguelike element of it? Well, to go into that, uh, 
what I there are three things at play that really brought it together. So we wanted to have the the real difficulty of permanent death, where any monster could kill you, and so and where your death would matter. It would be permanent for the for the game. At the same time, board games take a lot of effort to play. There's a lot of time involved, and a lot of moving parts, and so when players die and you lose the game, it feels very bad. Mm-hmm. Right, so a lot of board games are designed for you to win. We wanted to design Seventh Cross for players to lose, and so the merging of that of those three aspects—the legacy aspect and the play, the built to lose aspect, and the uh, ultimate result of permadeath—all those things together made us consider, you know, how are we going to give players a sense of progression and a sense of advancement? Mm-hmm. And for that, we turned to roguelike video games. So. When you are playing Seventh Cross, even if you die, if your whole party wipes, as you're playing, you're unlocking new gear and you're unlocking new abilities and combat abilities. Each path of the dungeons that you go through, each path of these adventures is going to have different things for you to discover. So if we go down one path and we all die, when we jump into the same adventure the next time, we'll keep all the gear that we unlocked and we can try a different path and have a new experience and still be playing through this castle. So win or lose, there are many paths that you can take, and there's still many, many things that can be unlocked. And that's the roguelike element of it, is that it's a game you are not really designed to win on your first time, but you will continue to get stronger and stronger and to unlock more strategic depth in the game as you play along. Yeah, and the one thing I want to point out is that all, a lot of these equipment aren't just... It's the original equipment you had, but with more number, right? Like, it's usually a side yeah. grade, right? A different equipments, equipments never give you numbers. They give you activated abilities. So these truly are, like, character UAs that mm-hmm. you, can, you can swap in and out as you're playing the game. So... Oh. You know, Eugenia with the ability to teleport allies is a lot different than Eugenia with the ability to create walls at will. And okay. that's going to change your entire combat strategy. And it's not just a straight numbers upgrade, which means that, you know, there's, no. there's a really big difference in the way you play, and it's not a brain-dead decision to pick one equipment over the other. I, one thing yeah. I also want to point out, so it sounds to me, is that you have a bunch of 10-hour um, adventures, and each adventure is not only, like, decision tracking, it's also very uh, replayable. Because if you go into an adventure with different equipment or different uh, characters, you could eventually meet different paths and the entire story could change, right? Absolutely. And in fact, some of the stories, so, so the game is app-based. You don't have a giant book of adventures. You don't have a bunch of cards to flip through. Instead, the an app is tracking your progress. And one of the advantages of this is that the app will seed the stories. So sometimes you'll go to a place and it'll be different than the first time than a, in a previous run. Sometimes one character betrays you and then in the second run they don't. So you never really know who to trust even if you're playing the same adventure multiple times. So even if you go into the adventure with the same party composition and the same equipment, it's it's not even likely You could that... have a different experience. Yeah. Yes. Okay, that's that's wonderful. So seeded adventures, so there's like some quote quote unquote randomization in each of So you're you're telling me that there's three adventures each of them very very replayable on their own so it sounds to me that this is like you have three mini legacy games inside your big game right that's a really good way that's a really good way to put it yeah we there are three small legacy games which you can play over and over again with the same part with the same party or different parties of friends for a different experience so it's yeah we want it to be a game that people did not have to overcommit to and we didn't want it to be a game too large our original spec was actually to make seven castles 
uh, and go through like a big sweeping adventure. But the game would be probably two or three hundred dollars if we did that. So what we're looking at is actually making a smaller package where the game can be around a hundred dollars or less to jump into, which will make it one of the easiest uh, of these big box adventure legacy games to get into. Yeah, uh, despite being one of the most well produced and uh, and most well developed and probably one of the most unique, I say. But oh yeah, I'm getting we'll a bit I'm to... getting a bit heavy handed well, with my superlatives here. So well, well, I right, when we get off. into the combat, where people are going to find out yeah. that it's pretty crazy. Um, one thing I yeah, also wanna... and I do want to get back to when we get to the combat section. I'd like to talk more about how we manage the power creep of how. Because there are, there are skills you get, and some of the skills are straight upgrades, but we have a cost system which is quite unique and to, to the game, and I think will really make people think twice about whether or not to include a power card in their deck. Okay, that's wonderful. And let's get to the final point of this first half of the episode, Brad. The story. Right, we, we talked about some of the lore of Seventh Cross. People probably know about it. It's about the church and monsters and magic and uh, so on and so forth, set in an alternate universe, alternate history of like 1940s yeah, or something a secret, like that. Secret history, 1930s Earth. Yeah. So, and the player, so with the story is something that's really important to us at level 99. And we spend a lot of time working on lore and story writing and making sure that the game is, is, just right and when we played a lot of the large box legacy games out there we either felt that there was no story at all or an story that was extremely heavy-handed and required you to read lots and lots of paragraphs to get anywhere and there wasn't much difference between those two yeah and so we kind of felt well what what can we do to to fix this so we look and at so our favorite series <laughs> Our favorite series, the game that we all we all hate to love, Dark Souls. Dark and Souls. so we go for the Dark Souls of storytelling, which is, is player-directed storytelling. So there are tidbits on items you find. There are tidbits on clues you get. So as you're adventuring, you'll find what are, we call like clues. And these are actual artifacts from the world, a photograph or a hospital record or a, let's say, um, a spell book, something like that. You'll find the actual thing, and you can comb that for clues if you want to, and if you show it to the right people, you might branch into different paths. Or if you use the clues in the right way, you might branch into different paths. But it's up to you. If you decide, this is not for me, I'm going to go fight the boss, then you do that and you just fight through the bosses and you get to the end of the story and you don't have to opt into the story. But if you do, the game will go as deep as you want to go. It will tell a story that keeps going the deeper you look. Yeah. So that's what we really wanted to get with it because it gives you it gives that's where a lot of the replayability comes from because you choose what paths you're going to take and you can also opt out of the story altogether that's really interesting to me because a lot of games that i play either it, it's basically they either punish you for not wanting to read the story or punish you for wanting to read the story right and it's it's really interesting that you've given players a lot of agency in how they want to interact with the game and this is a very interesting point of design where you know oftentimes games are directed by the players right the players games are literally all about player agency well, all games all games are directed by the players yeah exactly truly. exactly the player but, is i guess what we'd say the active component of the art yeah if we exactly were gonna talk in in kind of high fluent terms about yeah, it but that's the big thing about it right it's like a lot of aspects of the game are indeed player driven but the story the story is rarely player driven right the story is almost always literally like a movie just plays 
at certain points in time, yeah. right? Unless you're playing Dungeons and Dragons or another role playing game, you basically get cutscenes from your board games. Yeah, cutscenes and whatever, and and that's very like that's a that's a realm or space of design that I feel like has gone underutilized in a lot of quote unquote real games because choose your own adventure books do this all the time, right? Or a Bandersnatch, I guess, but like like mm-hmm. it's not it's not highlighted in conjunction with a quote unquote real game. So I'm really I'm really interested in in how this will turn out and I, I can't wait to play some more Seventh Cross and some and see some of the stories that unfold. I really wanna know why Taisei ends up becoming this weird corrupted evil dude. But hey, let's talk about that some other time. Brad, let's move over to the yeah. break or we can talk about some more of the mechanics, specifically psh, psh, combat. Are you okay? Yeah. We'll take a quick break and I will see you on the other side. See you on the other side, Buster Wolf! Want a game with other Level 99 Games fans, such as yourself? Join the official Discord channel. You can find the invitation link in the description below. Hey, come on! Bring it, bring it, bring it back. <laughs> come on back what? to this episode of the new Level Cap Podcast. We're back from our break. We're excited and we're pumped to get into some combat. Brad, what if I don't care about your story and all of this stuff? What if I just want to beat up some monsters? Let's talk about combat. Well, we have a really excellent monster hunting game in 7th Cross. And we spent a lot of time building on this combat. It builds on the combat that we designed for Battlecon and for Exceed as kind of a foundation, but it takes it in a fully cooperative direction and it gives the players... So our, we studied a lot of the games in the space. Most of the games are truly you know dice-driven games. Not a whole lot of great player strategic choice or mm-hmm. the decisions that you make are mostly tactical and mostly numbers-based. Yep. So we wanted to create a game that would embody the sort of aesthetics that follow all of our level 99 games, which is about player choice and player selection of strategy, as opposed to just playing whatever you think is best and hoping for a good outcome. So, yeah. So in seventh cross, it is very important that you watch what monsters are capable of and that you anticipate what monsters are capable of. And with, with our AI, we built a very neat system of monster telegraphs where you as a player will know sort of what routines the monster is going to do and what sequence they'll do them in. And then it's up to you to prepare yourself and to avoid and counter the monster's attacks. So mm-hmm. to explain, monsters are very lethal in this game. Oh uh, yeah, character they, has as far as I yeah. know, um as far as I know monsters in this game can two shot you, right? Like one one or two. Really like a, like a monster is Every monster has pretty much like an instant murder grab. Uh, trademark copyright. Uh, that's that's a term I coined for for my playthroughs of Dark Souls. But yeah, yeah. instant murder grab. They 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 can pretty much all one shot you if you're not paying attention. Yeah, they will sleeping. definitely two shot you if you have poor strategy. So the the monsters hit real hard. Yeah. The monsters also attack at a rate relative to the numbers of the player number of players at the table. So the more players you have, the more often the monster is fighting. And what that means is that the player as there's more players at the table, the monster combat sequence gets more and more involved. Unfortunately, the monster does not care how many of you at the table are at the table. It fixates on one person. 
Uh-oh. So if there are four of you, then the like the one person that the monster is fixated on has to deal with four times as many attacks. And what that means is that mo- a large portion of combat in the higher player count games is about you and your teammates working together to mitigate and control aggro of the monster. So much like any good raid boss, control of the boss is the fundamental key to victory. So we're, we're, I'm going to start talking about some of the nittier, grittier mechanics, and let's talk a little bit about interrupts, right? So you see a yeah. move about to come in. It's a giant tail swipe from this monster, and it's currently fixated on your spoony bard Cyrus. Brad, what do we do? So if I'm Joffrey the Paladin, I can just, you know, I might use a, a an action to move in front of it and take the hit because I can power up some of my own moves by taking hits. If I am, say, playing um, a character like Eugenia, who we talked about earlier, and I can create walls, I might want to already be set up in a position where I can cast my wall spell in front of the attack's range and block it. So the the players, the hunters, have a huge number of interrupt effects at their disposal, and holding onto your hand, managing your hand, managing when to use these interrupts and how to use them is is more than half of a player's game. So the monster is quite active in the game, but the players are most active on the monster turns. Yeah. When it's your turn as a hunter and you're just going around, you kind of have free reign to do what you want, and it's very straightforward. You know, I want to do optimum damage, and I want to position myself in a way such that looking at what the monster's combat routines are, I'm least likely to be targeted by this monster, or so that I don't get enough aggro to become the primary target of the monster. Mm-hmm. So there's a really neat system where monsters have shields, and when you break a mo- when you do enough damage, you break a monster's shield. Once you hold on to that shield, they fixate on you. And so as long as you whoever has the most shields in your team is the monster's primary target. But you can spend those shields to activate more character powers. So when I use my best moves often, or I use some of my best utilities, the monster will stop looking at me and go look at somebody else. And, and so players have a lot of tools, a lot of levers for aggro control. Yeah, and that's that's very cool, right? Because oftentimes the characters who deal the most damage to the monster are the characters who gain shields, which kind of creates this cool dynamic of your squishy DPS deals the most damage, but the monster starts fixating on them, but the DPS can do something about it by spending the shield on a powerful ability to hopefully like cash mm-hmm. in, right? And that's yeah, absolutely. some of and the coolest you stuff. you get to the point where characters like your your paladins and such that have aggro control, they can actually create fake shields for themselves so that they <laughs> hold aggro better. So that's kind of cool. Like you can essentially taunt the boss, right? Like Absolutely. <laughs> and you must. Not only can you taunt the boss, but you must taunt the boss or else if <laughs> you die. If the boss is like, yeah, if the boss just gets to do what it wants to do, your team will all die very quickly. Ooh. And so, like I said, the the it's not just about doing more damage. You can't outdamage these bosses. That's that's the takeaway here. You cannot outdamage these bosses. You have to have a strategy, and you have to manage very carefully between your dodges and your blocks, because you don't really have enough cards to beat the boss. The bosses, yeah. the game is heavily stacked against you. Well, and so it really requires teamwork to overcome the advantages. Are you telling me get. that friendship is the only way we get to beat the evils? Yeah, 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 friendship is the key. Friendship is the key. Brad, I, one cool dynamic I've had with like the interrupts is that it kind of feels like... So you know what's the most in- entertaining part of Magic the Gathering for me? You Are you a blue player? 
Well, no, I'm a red player. <laughs> but <laughs> but it's okay. the the point is that um the stack and using spells and instants at certain timings to interrupt somebody's plan, whether that's because you're blue and you're counterspelling something or because you're red and you lightning bolt something when they were expecting it to not be dead, right? Like, that's mm-hmm. the coolest part of it because it essentially gives you actions to do even if it's not your turn. And that essentially makes the game way more involved because now you care about what the monster's doing. You care about what your teammates are doing, Right. And because you have that hand, like we talked about in a cooperative games episode, because you have your hand and you don't necessarily know what everybody's interrupts are, you have to keep constantly engaged in the game, right? You can't just sit back or you can't quarterback the entire game because you don't know everybody's hands, right? So You don't know everybody's hands. The characters are complex enough that you can't really run. It's hard to run two of them at once. Yeah. They really, they stay pretty involved. You, you want to spend your time quarterbacking the monster. That's the real that's the real quarterbacking that happens in this game. Is <laughs> you quarterback the monster. And that's what a good hunt should feel like, right? Yep. I'm in control of what this creature is doing and I'm anticipating its moves and I'm reacting in advance so that I can control them. And so typically what'll happen is we'll all be playing our own characters and maybe one or two of the char- players at the table will really have control of the monster because oh, they'll be so the cool. ones that are holding aggro. Yeah, so that's what your tanks are doing. That's maybe some of your um like, like, okay, maybe let's move on to a little bit of uh, what the kind of characters that we can play as, right? Yeah, so, yeah, let me tell you something about the hunters. Yeah, let's, let's talk about a few hunters. We already talked about tanks. Let's talk about my main man, Jeffrey. Joffrey? Jeff? Um, I still don't Joffrey. know. Joffrey. I say, I say Joffrey. All right, okay, Joffrey. But, let's talk about Joffrey. Yeah. So Joffrey's so, a paladin, right? <laughs> yeah, this is your, your standard uh, stock church paladin. He is a uh, heavy tank, but he's also a caster. So he's a caster tank, if that makes sense. Sort of hybrid. He has a lot of great range attacks, but he also is able to soak up a lot of damage, create walls, buff other people, and heal. So yeah. if you think of him more, I guess, as a, a white mage in heavy armor, you probably get the, the right feel for him. If you've played Ragnarok Online before, there's a class called um, Battle Priest. So that's essentially what he is, right? He's a Battle Priest. Yeah. Yeah, essentially. And he has relics that... Um, that become powerful or that that power up when he spins shields on them so when he takes monster shields he can use those to upgrade his weapons oh so he technically so he can tank damage stay in the fight deal a decent amount of damage hopefully take a shield and then buff himself so that he can tank better or deal more damage right that's his kind yeah. of pattern and kira will have to correct me on the the exact implementation of all of the hunter weapons because no, those have fine. evolved quite a bit since i stopped uh since i finished designing the game and it went into development yeah and so and, and that's completely devel- fine. so i understand the general play styles but if uh if joffrey's weapons don't flip over in the final version that that's that's uh that may i may not be able to get too specific in the mechanics right no that, that's fine we just need some general understanding of how the characters play right because we've seen a lot of yeah. them in seventh cross right but we have to understand how they work because in seventh cross it's like me fighting against another person but how do these characters use their playstyles against a giant monster that can one-shot you right so mm-hmm. th- that's a very interesting thing we need to talk about uh how about my main uh, how about my main man zolt the hunter of men yeah so zolt is the is the i guess you'd say your traditional monster hunter your belmont or your dante type character mm-hmm. he has a lot of standard monster hunter weapons holy water throwing axes the whip doubles guns. guns his primary weapon is the double swords so he's got all this stuff he is a 
combo heavy character. So he likes to use a lot of weapons at once and he likes to cycle his deck really quickly. But that's the danger in Seventh Cross because the faster you cycle your deck, the more often monsters attack. So when Zolt is playing, he'll often he'll 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 often have a lot of aggro and he'll because he's doing so much damage and he'll also often be going through his deck quite quickly, which creates more monster attack opportunities. So he's doing that the um and he's very good at dodging monsters in response to this. So he has high mobility and he has a lot of instantaneous dodge effects. Oh, but so really those does... are his interrupts. It's save my own yeah. skin interrupts. I see. He has a couple of those. He also has, you know, your classic Bloodborne parry where you can just shoot the monster in the face to prevent it from attacking him. Nice. <laughs> so so you've got those those kind of things, right? Like we have all where we all we know where our inspirations are coming from with these characters. Yeah, we're 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 not hiding it, right? Because those are good things to take from. Okay, so we, we, we've talked about tank, we've talked about essentially what amounts to like a warrior rogue, right? Let's talk a yeah. little bit more about our supportive classes. Uh, Renea is a character that frustrates a lot of Exceed players for being one of the most control-heavy characters in the game. Does that carry over yeah. into Seventh Cross, Hunters of the Church? Absolutely. So Renea is a, a investigator-type character, and she brings that to combat, too. She has great range with many different munitions-type weapons, so she uses a lot of guns, flares, bombs, etc. But her real abilities are that she can use, she can use these skills to peek at upcoming monster attacks. So she can mind-probe so, the monster. Basically. Or, or you know, if, if, if we're talking about, like, monster forms, because everybody has a monster form, so there might be some mind-probing if she turns into her monster form. But in human form, it's just about, you know, like, oh, I see that they're winding up for this. Or I anticipate they're going to use this move, you know, in this sequence. So so she's kind of the mastermind character. She's Sherlocking the boss. There's, a, okay. there's some Sherlock Holmes there. And so so she can look ahead at the monster's attack patterns, which gives you a huge advantage to try and avoid those attack patterns. So while Renea doesn't have a lot of, like, dodge or defense abilities, like Joffrey and Zolt, what she does have is just the ability to know that she's not in danger if she stands in a certain place. See, and that's one thing I really liked about this design, is that I've always wondered how a specific character could deal with one-shottable monsters if they weren't a big tank or a dodgy rogue. And I really like this ability of, of Renea to just be like, you know what, I'm not particularly tough, and I'm not particularly fast, but I'm just smart enough to not even be in trouble in the first place, right? Yeah, and it's just I just not stand in the way. Yeah, and it's it's so cool, like like the the fact that the game system allows you to model this type of thing. Like one thing I really dislike about a, a lot of games that have wizard characters is that there's no way for the wizard to model it in such a way that I'm smart enough that the monster's attacks won't even get to me, right? Because the wizard has to <laughs> just either, you know, put up a spell shield or increase his own defensive capabilities with magic. But it's not it, that's not what the wizard would actually do. The wizard would be smart enough to not even be in trouble in the first place, right? So <laughs> I really like that you were able to do this. Okay, let's end it all with one everyone's favorite Spoonie bard, uh, Cyrus. <laughs> so yeah so cyrus cyrus is the adventurer and he like i said earlier he's a medium and he can contact and control spirits so each of his uh magic instruments has a spirit associated with it and these spirits actually can be summoned into play on the battlefield so he's like a beastmaster pet character. yeah so he's got that kind of a thing they don't fight like a beastwood but instead they are platform buffs so everybody who's around that that spirit gets to partake of whatever buff they're offering. 
Ah. And so normally these are quite these are quite good, but also the spirits are are bodies. And so if this if a monster is on the same platform as a spirit, a, a human can hide behind the spirit, and the spirit will tank the hit for you. Ooh. So he can you he can kind of create these illusion tanks. And some of his spirits even aggro monsters. Like, they, they act as the aggro target when they're available. See, and so, that's another way that the character who is not well, necessarily a tough boy can deal with the monster. That's really cool. Yeah, so like I said, it's a lot about control. And when we talk about control, it's not just about um, controlling the monster's actions, but also improving your allies. So in Seventh Cross, I said monsters have shields. In order to break a shield, you have to do a certain amount of damage to the monster. And it just has to be you. You can't. You don't mix together with your other with your other allies. Yeah. If Renea does seven damage and Zolt does seven damage and Joffrey does like seven damage, we don't break a ten shield. Zolt has to do ten damage himself to break a shield with rating ten. Yeah. So very often, a lot of what the game is about is Renea will actually play a find weakness card, which will give Zolt the plus three he needs to break ten. Even though Renea could do some damage, she'll she'll actually assist Zolt's attack. And let him take the aggro, so that you know when the monster throws its you know its big claw attack, it's hitting at Zolt, who is in a safe space, rather than Renea, who's in a dangerous in an endangered space. So you're telling me that in this game, it is not always the best strategy to just have everyone shoot their best attacks at the boss. It is. It is absolutely the, not the best strategy to Woo! just shoot the boss as hard. We as you finally can. did it. We finally did it. Oh gosh! Again, my big qualm about a lot of tactical combat games is everybody just shoots their rocket launchers at the boss, and that's it, right? Um, you really, yeah. Well, you really can't alpha strike these bosses because, like I said, most of the best uh, attacks that are available to you require shields as a catalyst to activate them. So you have to do some damage in order to use your supers, right? And I guess that's like a cool way of progressing through a fight, right? Like you start mm-hmm. off the fight weak and you try to help each other out until your essentially your carries and your DPS can do their big attacks, right? And that's that's cool. I like that. Brad, mm-hmm. we talk a little bit about our uh, the main mechanics. We talk a little bit about the hunters, but let's talk about what really gets highlighted in this game. Our big boys. Um yeah. BOIS, the big boys, the bosses, Brad. Let's talk about some bosses. Yes. <laughs> yes, the bosses. So the the bosses are a real showcase of this game, and they really bring a lot of cool mechanics together. So you know, it's the the hunt is about this dance between the monsters and the hunters together. So half of that equation is going to be the monsters, and so they have to really, I guess, have their own personality. Have they have to tell a story? So our first monster in the game is this uh, is called Morghar, and it's this dog-like creature made out of corpses and it crawls out of this icy well and it's covered in like you know in like 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 blue spirit ooze and it's create and it has ice breath and it creates walls very dark and, souls bloodborne slash monster yeah. hunter inspired i think very cool mm-hmm. all right all right so so what and this so- is this is a great first boss because uh, the the ice uh field effect is actually a wall that blocks attacks so as long as you can dodge the monster's initial attacks, you can actually stand behind the ice and block its physical attacks too. So you've got a great – so it's a nice tutorial boss because you can really – if you get hit by the first attack, you won't get hit by the second one. Right? Ooh. So, so it, it creates a nice thing for the players and it lets you learn about how the terrain works. And so you beat this boss. You, you, you kill the boss 
and then um you know it kind of like it uh, it goes down and you get a choice you could either try to um you know like crush its its limbs or you could try to attack its jaws or you could rest and recover your strength and depending on what you do um because the boss comes back for phase two of the fight of course and when it comes back in phase two it like it ignites on fire and it becomes this giant hellhound and Ooh. so saw fire knife you mm-hmm. so if you yeah so if you it decided to attack its jaw it loses its breath ability if you decided to attack its claws its claw attack gets weaker and if you decide to rest, you can get some hearts back, but it's going to have its full attack string available to it. That's so, so cool. <laughs> so the choices that you make mid-fight um, in these kind of intermissions really change the the path that the boss takes. And then, um, and then in the second phase, the boss uses fire, which fire is kind of the opposite. If you move through it, you take damage. So it's uh, so the fight gets a lot less forgiving in phase two. Yeah, because but now you can protect yourself using the fire, right? Because it yeah. will actually hurt you if you do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you have to use. So you have to. So you have to adapt. But hopefully, what you learned in the first phase of the fight carries you through the second. And then there's not much more hand holding. The bosses get pretty mean after that. So you're telling me that that this boss that can still one shot you and like do fire terrain and everything is the 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 most forgiving boss you have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is the most <laughs> the most forgiving boss we have. Oh my gosh. Um, and this is what's really going to excite me because I want to lose to these bosses because I want to have that Dark Souls <laughs> experience of like, wait a minute. I, how do I beat this guy, right? And that's going to be so cool when it happens. Okay, wait. So that's the tutorial boss. Give me a sneak peek of a boss that might be a little bit more complex than that, you know? Sure. So in a later part of the the fight, or in a later part of, of one of the castles, we have a boss called Kali, and this is like the classic Indian, you know, uh, deity of wrath, and has a bunch of different weapons and and forearms to fight you with multiple weapons at once. Oh, Alak so, Gilgamesh from Final Fantasy. Yeah. Okay. So the way that monsters work in Seventh Cross is as you go through your deck, your deck has curse cards in it, and mm-hmm. uh, I was going to talk a little bit about this earlier, but. There are some attacks that hunters have that are just more powerful uh, or less powerful, but these take up a number of slots in your deck. Okay, so okay. a really powerful attack might take three slots, whereas for a weaker attack, I could have three copies of a weak attack for the same. Like I could have three cop cards of a weaker attack versus one card of a of a stronger attack. I see. I get it. So right? it's like you can have three regular slashes and then you can only have one mega slash right like something like that but and and so well you think like why would i never want a a mega slash because that'll cycle around more and i'll get it in my hand more well you have a fixed number of curse cards in your deck and these are what trigger the monsters to attack so the shorter your deck is the more often monsters are attacking whereas the taller your deck is the more chances you have when you draw that extra card that it's not going to trigger a monster attack okay Ah, so, I see. And that's why Zolt was dangerous, because Zolt cycles yeah. through his deck like nothing. Very quickly. Yes, okay. he can draw lots of cards, and that is that means the monster will aggro quite quickly against him. Okay, so, okay. The, um, so, so what happens when you draw a curse? The monster doesn't attack immediately. It attacks at the start of your next turn. So if I draw a curse now, I know that I need to be prepared to deal with an attack before my next turn, right? Yeah. But... Um, every player has those individually. So if the player to my left has already has curse tokens, I know that the monster is actually going to attack at the start of their turn. And it might be aggroed on me based on my decisions right now. Oh, so this is no. where aggro control gets really important because I know the monster is going to take one or two or three or four attacks before my next turn 
including the one at the start of my next turn. And I have to be ready to survive all of those, or I have to trust my team to Help take me. some of those attacks off the table, like by taking aggro away from me, or by and, controlling the monster. And we want to know that every single one of these attacks could potentially take off half your health bar, right? Yeah, at a minimum. At a minimum. Uh-oh. <laughs> so, so anyway, so so what makes Kali so cool? Um, this boss has combo attacks, where... If they if they hit with certain attacks or they make certain moves and there are still curse tokens on the table, no matter where they are, they'll just take the next turn immediately rather than waiting for you to take turns in between them. Uh-oh. Okay, so, so, so they basically give if, you less time to react. Right. So if I like grab like three or four curses and I'm like, well, at least my party has, you know, three like three turns to deal with these attacks, uh, the monster might not actually give you three turns to deal with the attacks. She might uh- just combo out and hit you seven times the next turn and then you die yeah well then you're then your party then you're tpk'd right yeah oh, okay so that's interesting so 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 kali kind of changes the way the tempo or the flow of the game works you have not- to be yeah you have to be extremely careful about how how much tempo you give this boss because you give just a little bit and she'll take it all <laughs> you give her an inch she takes a 20 miles right yeah okay, that's that's yeah. really cool and i assume like throughout an entire adventure you could possibly like after you complete a certain segment of it you probably go back to the sanctuary you can regroup do some other stuff with your associates etc right so yeah. if for some reason you know, like maybe you had a party member who can scry into the future and you know you have to fight against Kali, maybe you want to fix your deck in such a way that you don't cycle through all your cards too often, right? Yeah. That's... Or you could even you could even go to the fight and realize that you're outmatched or that you're not ready and leave. You can run oh, away. You can run and away. And then try it again. Uh, for some bosses, you can. Yeah. The game has a time. So as time goes on, the game is constantly triggering its own events in the background. Oh my god, wait, are you telling me this is like Majora's Mask? <laughs> like A little bit, yeah. Like, if it gets to be midnight and you don't get to a certain place by a certain time, a character might die. Wait, right? And and so, like, so that's your penalty. If I see this monster and I run away and I go respec and I want to go, like, talk to my associates and get all my gear blessed and rebuild my, you know, thing and maybe go explore a couple other areas of the castle to find more loot, and then I come back, well, things might, the game might have progressed without me. And so that's the real that's the real danger, right? You there are real consequences to not taking every challenge head on. Right. There are real consequences to exploring the story, right? If I decide to go down some rabbit hole and find out what happened ten years ago in this house, I might not you know, I might not catch the uh the, the axe murderer that's in the next you know, that's in the clock tower. Brad, this is a wild thing that you just brought up right now that even I <laughs> even I didn't know about. Where Majora's masking the story? Okay, Brad, I'm sold. When is this game coming to Kickstarter? How much do I have to pay? And when after I pay, how long do I have to wait to freaking play this awesome game that you've sold me on? Okay, well, so to so say, we've been working on Seventh Cross for like three years now. And that has not just vanished. Like, most of the game is finished. The first two adventures are completely done. For the last adventure, we're just doing a little bit more art and a little bit more writing to finish it up. So the game is just about done, and we're in the final steps of polishing. So the so it won't be that long. We're planning to kickstart in winter, and I think that we will be delivering uh, in like next fall at the latest. Mm-hmm. So I anticipate it's going to be a fall 2020 release. And like I said, we're trying to keep the game so that it's not too large. We don't want to create this giant game that you have to commit to playing 50 or 60 times to get your money's worth. 
we're going to make a game with three small legacy adventures inside one box. And, you know, you can commit just on a small scale to playing that. And we're going to try and keep the project sub $100 to get into. Oh, gosh. Which will make it, like, the cheapest of these, of this genre to get of, into. Of the big boy games. I think... Of these, I, yeah, of these big legacy hunt, monster hunting games. It's going to be great. Uh, I think this is a very big step for us because... This might be the first time we ever go to Kickstarter with a project that is, is essentially actually done, right? Like, yeah, I know it's it's terrible to to, to admit it, but yeah, this well, is it's like not the most complete we've had a game before we go to Kickstarter. Well, it's it's not a terrible thing to admit, right? Because a lot of games go to Kickstarter and they're not even made. Like, there's nothing about that game. You just have a concept, right? Oftentimes, what we do is we come to a game with an early version of it, and we have to iterate a lot. But it seems like we've done all of the iterating prior to even releasing it on Kickstarter, which yeah. it, which kind of explains to all of the fans who have been wondering, it's like, where's Seventh Cross? It's like, yeah, we're doing this now before making you pay for it so that you can just get it as soon as possible after you pay for it, right? Yeah. I mean, and, for those people that followed the blogs really closely and you're wondering, like, well, what happened since V40.4 where, you know, Brad's like, yeah, we're doing a new thing. Well, what happened is the game stabilized and then we started doing art. And it took us uh, and writing, and it took us a year and a half to do the art and the writing. And okay. so now that that's mostly done, we're pretty much ready to kickstart. We're back. We're back to the stories, and we're back to the art. We, uh, Wicked Alucard has done a great job on some of these characters. Um, by the way, did we ever mention throughout this episode that the board is vertical and kind of looks like a side scroller? Did we ever mention? We that? didn't. We didn't even mention that. But the board it uses a vertical two D board. Um, I would kind of call it like. I mean, it's almost like a puppet theater, right? Yeah. And so kinda. we we wanted to do we initially thought about doing this game with miniatures and making it just like the other games in in this in this category. So it kind of looks like an isometric gloomhaven kind of view, right? Yeah, but we were like, no, like miniatures are super expensive and they're gray and ugly, and I don't know anybody that's actually painted their miniatures. I know some people do somewhere in the world. But I have never actually met somebody that painted their copy of Gloomhaven or Kingdom Death. So I can only speak for the, the people that I know in real life. But so I said, well, what if, we, why can't, how can we make a cool full color presentation? And so we built this stage that is almost like, uh, yeah, that's like a puppet theater, almost like a Smash Brothers stage. And you move your characters along it vertically, up and down, left and right to fight. So it feels like a platformer. And you could set it in the middle of the table, or if you have a smaller party and everybody sits on one half of the table, you can actually put a backdrop into it so that you have the shadow box. Oh, so you have like a background to it. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. But any combat game state is something that you could take a photo of and it would look gorgeous. So it's designed to create really cool visual spectacle as you play the game. So if people want to see what... what so essentially, it's like you... The game board is essentially a giant, well, not a giant, but a diorama, right? It's, it's pretty giant. It's pretty giant. It's like three feet long. Okay, but that's not, okay, but again, the, I, maybe the word giant is different, right? Because some game boards are way bigger than three feet long, right? Um, um, I think Arkham Horror is like three feet long. That's one of the biggest. Okay, okay. It's a pretty huge game board. Maybe I don't know what uh, American units of measurement are. Uh, it's like a meter. It's, it's a little less than oh, a meter. Oh, a meter. Okay, never mind. That's pretty big. All right. Uh, yeah. so essentially they're big dioramas then. Yeah, it's a it's a large di- large diorama um with 
you know, with 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 paper cutout figures that you move around. It's it's I don't know what to say. It's not paper, right? It's cardboard. Yeah, it's cardboard, cardboard figures. But I mean, it's I I, I hesitate to say that it's like a like a dollhouse, but it kind of reminds me of the Luigi's Mansion stage from Smash Brothers. So that's my constant comparison. Yeah, um, but it's not, they're not silhouettes, right? They're full full artwork characters with colors. Yeah, they're right? full art characters in in full color. And they actually have combat poses that face left and right. So when you're when you put monsters and characters on the table, it kind of looks like you're in the middle of playing Darkest Dungeon with the characters facing off against the so monsters. So one of my frames of reference, if if you want to to have some idea of what the board in Seventh Cross might look like, just look for the Darkest Dungeon diorama, like the actual Darkest Dungeon official diorama. It basically is that. Right, so uh, if you if you look at it, you'll you'll see oh, it. You'll I gotta get look up I this mean. thing. I haven't seen it yet. Right, uh, it just looks like a screenshot of the game, but like printed on vertical stands and stuff. Yeah. Wow. Yep. It kind of looks like that. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like that's pretty. That's pretty exact. Um, we're looking at using clear, uh, like actually acrylics instead of um, instead of cardboard, though, so that we can actually cut out the backgrounds from the characters. So they'll be truly built against the background we'll see how much that costs so um it, it depends it may be yep. like one of those deluxified things well you know what details aside i'm really excited for seventh cross hunters of the church brad thank you so much for divulging all of these sweet sweet secrets to all of our wonderful listeners who stay tuned every week so as much as i would love to keep talking about seventh cross and as much as i would love to play some seventh cross with brad right now i believe that has brought us to the end of this episode so brad is there anything else you want to say before we end it just that i am super excited to be bringing seventh cross to you at last after all this work after three years of work it's going to be the coolest thing that we've ever done okay and i can't wait for it myself so Thank you so much for watching this episode of watching and listening to this episode of the New Level Cap Podcast. If you liked it, share it with a friend. And if you hated it, share it with an enemy. As usual, that's been me, your host, Marco DeSantos, also known as Mechanic Rick. And with me has been my amazing co-host, Brad Talton. I think thank you all for taking the time to tune in to us here. And as always, happy gaming. Don't forget your special action. And thank you, World of Seventh Cross. Thank you. And, and good night. night. The new Level Cap podcast is produced by Level 99 Games. Join us next Wednesday for more design talk and shenanigans. Thank you for listening.